21 this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn to John 21. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to read along with us, just keep your hand up and one of these lovely gentlemen will, uh, would love to give you a Bible so you can dive in. Um, I uh, just uh, want to say something about to the moms this morning too. Um, happy Mother's Day. Huh, am I right? Moms are like the best ever, right? Yeah. So the um I uh I actually last night just got back from San Diego. Uh spent a few days in San Diego for to go see my grandmother. So some of you uh know the story, some of you don't don't, but my my father that raised me, he's my stepdad, but I call him my dad. I, he was 2 years old. I was two, he was 2 years old. I was two years old when he came into my life, and my parents weren't Christians and kind of grew up in a, a rough environment. And, um, and uh, my, my uh, father who raised me, his citizenship is uh, from the UK. He grew up in, uh, not, not fully, but most of his life in, in um, Manchester, England. And my grandparents uh, came over on a boat to the United States of America um, for you know all the promises that the U.S. gave and and uh, made that large travel. I remember them sharing stories uh, about what that boat trip was like and what it was like to live uh, in England during World War II. And we we uh, after my dad passed away suddenly a few years back, uh, almost five years ago this month, uh, in a in a car accident. He was in a race car. He used to race uh, these little dwarf cars, and he he uh, died suddenly in a a race. Uh, an accident. And um, a few years after that, so a couple years ago, uh, we said goodbye to his dad. He passed away. And this last week, I went down to San Diego to say goodbye to my grandmother. She's, she's kind of on her way uh, out from this life to the next. And I have spent some time with people passing on, a few this last month, actually. And there was just uh, saying goodbye to my grandmother, went down with my mom and my two sisters, I have two younger sisters, to say goodbye to her. She knew why we were there, and it was no secret. I don't think I've ever been in the presence of somebody that had as much peace as she currently has. She, she said to us, she said, I'm not looking at God. She still has an English accent, real heavy one, and I'm not going to try to duplicate it this morning. But she said, I'm not looking at God and shaking my fist. Why? I'm, I'm looking at God and saying, when? And uh, she, we were crying with her, and she looked down at my sisters, and she said, Jesus is wiping away your tears. And she said, I'm just so thankful that I had the family that I have. And she looked at my sisters, and she said to both of my sisters, she says, I, I wish you long and beautiful, a long and beautiful life. And really, I'm not one of those, like, mystic people. I know that kind of gets labeled on some pastors or spiritual gurus or whatever, but I'm not all into the mystic kind of stuff, but it really did feel like Jesus was in that room and he's gently guiding her into the next place and just a very beautiful, peaceful moment. And I, she, before I came down, she said, uh, she said, I hope Jesse will pray with me. It's a really humbling place to be, you know, younger than, than most of the people in your family and to be looked at as, as the spiritual guide for the family. It's just very humbling for me to, to have my grandmother look at me that way and ask that I'd pray with her. And as I prayed for her, I, I, I prayed that, that um, God would bless her in her last days and stuff. But, 
But I also just thank the God and his sovereignty to bring this family from, uh, from Europe to the United States of America, down to San Diego, and for my dad and God's providence and his sovereignty to bring that man into my mom's life and to give me a dad. If it wasn't for this woman and through God's promises and guidance, I would have never had a father. And I just said to her uh, as I was praying, thank you for giving me a father. And so moms, we, uh, we just say you're important. You, you are so important and you are so valued and we're just thankful for you. You're, you're more important than the guys in the room, let's be honest. I don't totally mean that, but I kind of do. So thank you. Uh, Also, this morning, um, I want to highlight a couple a couple young people. You know, we we uh, number one, uh, Shannon Brimer went down uh, a while back to uh, Moody Bible College. She's not here this morning because she uh, she graduated from Moody Bible College this weekend. uh, So we want to congratulate her and and uh, Maggie. Didn't you just graduate as well? So we celebrate you should have, and we'll talk about you more next year. Um, and then uh, another young gentleman I want to um, bring up is Clayton. So Clayton, come on up, Clayton Lynn. And um, Clayton just finished up a school of a one-year school of ministry in Montana. And so I want uh, him to share a little bit about that and what he's doing and then what he's going to be doing in the future. So um, Clayton, tell him what you, you've you've been doing the last year? So for the past year, I have been attending a college called Arrowhead Bible College up in Montana. It's in the middle of nowhere, 30 minutes from the closest town, and it's awesome. Um, But throughout the school year, you spend the first semester going through the Old Testament and going through all the context and all the things that goes into that. And then second semester, you kind of move into New Testament and study kind of New Testament books, and then you move on to some more applicational classes. And then at the end of it, you cap it off with a two-week trip to Israel. So I got back from Israel three weeks ago and still kind of trying to process everything that happened this past year and all the things I've learned, and it's just still blowing my mind every day. So he's graduated school, and then after you finish the school, they've asked you to partake in what? Share with them the opportunity you had before you. So the school in the summer is a Christian camp, and it's still a Christian camp in the winter, but in the winter it's primarily a school. But they have this internship program they just finished working on, and there, it's totally new and redesigned, and someone donated a bunch of money to the camp for two interns, housing and food costs to be covered. So they gave that money to me and one other student. So all of my food and housing costs have been covered for the next year. But I'll be part of an internship where I get to study what it means to work at a Christian camp and how it all runs. So I'll spend time bouncing between different departments like facilities and administration and kitchen, working in those. But I'll spend most of my time in the program department, learning what it means to kind of program and design a summer for a camper. Yeah, super cool. So you guys know, too, he he um, went through our youth group, and he shared a little bit. The other night, I checked in on John and the youth group to see how they were doing, spent the, the night back in youth ministry after several years. Haven't spent, And John's doing a good job, by the way, um, the amazing kids and stuff. And he shared a little bit, and one of the things that really touched my heart was to hear uh, the journey that God took you on you know, through our youth group, and you'd mentioned a couple people that played an important part of that, that during your parents kind of going through a split and all that stuff as a young kid, tell us a little bit about what those guys meant to you and who they were. Um, so in middle school, 
you were still the high school pastor and Brad Knoll was the middle school pastor. So during my time in middle school, I was just really depressed and struggling every single week. But Brad Knoll kept encouraging me every single week to keep coming. And we met once a week and we'd go get ice cream or we'd just go hang out. And just that encouragement every single week just kept me going to youth group and being community. And then when I got into high school, John transitioned into the youth pastor. So he just played a super important role too, just encouraging me to be in a community of believers and continue to participate in a community like that, continuing to grow and build each other up was what just just played such a huge role in just where I am now and just will play a huge role in the rest of my life. Yeah. So now your internship, as you've gone through high school, God's done a great work in you, pouring into you for the next year, one-year internship, and they're covering your living expenses, not your living, your... your uh, Food and housing. Food and housing. So all your food is covered, all your housing's covered, right? But what are you missing out on? So I still have to cover all my personal expenses, like car insurance and gas and travel expenses and just little expenses like that, just the day-to-day expenditures, shampoo, deodorant, things like that. <laughs> so those are all the things I have to cover myself that aren't a part of the internship. <laughs> and what's the monthly cost of that? Um, it's just under $400 a month to cover all my personal expenses. So $400 a month, full year, $4,800. Yeah. I know a couple people who could help. <laughs> what do you think? That would be really awesome. <laughs> okay, so so little history. Sierra Bible Church has, has always, prior, prior to me, has always had a tradition of pouring into young people, which we're super grateful for. Um, when I was 21 years old, so uh, which is crazy to think it was almost 20 years ago, um, I stood up here as around his age, young man, and Wayne brought me and two other guys up here to say, hey, we want to put these guys through a school of ministry. Very similar situation. And this church provided for our tuition uh, for that time, for a year for each of us. And through that investment that the church made, I ended up becoming the lead pastor of Sierra Bible Church. So great investment. Kudos for you who are still here then. Uh, and then, as you know, Travis became a missionary in Mexico, and we support him through So Ministries. And so that investment continues to pay dividends. And we want to continue that tradition uh, with Clayton. And so if... Uh, by chance, you feel led to help support what he's doing for the next year and to, to fill that need in your um, tithe offering, your offering on your check or your box. Just type in there that it's for Clayton uh, in the memo or on the envelope that you got when you walked in, and we'll make sure that those funds uh, get put towards him for the year and that he's taken care of so that he doesn't smell. Right? <laughs> yeah, let's pray for him real quick. Lord, we um, thank you for Clayton and how you're leading him and guiding him. Thank you for the testimony of a young man uh, who was in a place of depression, but Lord, you've continued to work in his life and bring him to a place of hope and guidance and that you want to continue to use him for your kingdom. And I pray that you would keep him safe and that you would prepare him for that and that you would take care of all the needs, Lord, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, man. Yeah. Okay. Um, John 21 Verse 1, as you know, we have a tradition of, um, uh, if you're able to, the, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. And I want to encourage you this morning to stand with us as we read from John chapter 21. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. We will cover and finish after almost a full year uh, the gospel of John this morning. Verse 1, chapter 21, the gospel of John. After this, 
Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other, other disciples came to the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of these disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. The Gospel of John has been for me, and hopefully for you, it's like a beautiful painting. It's a gospel that really, as you get into it, is, it's, just, it's a very unique, very beautiful piece of literature. 90% of what's in the Gospel of John, 90% of it in the last year, is not con- covered in the Synoptic Gospels. Much of what we have read and studied is not in Matthew, it is not in Mark, it is not in Luke. It is special and unique to the eyewitness testimony of John. In, for example, the Gospel of John, we have the seven I Am statements and the high priestly prayer. 170 times this piece of work mentions Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus 170 times, and, and, and then in addition to that, 100 times, it mentions the word believe. In fact, this idea of believing that this piece of literature was written that you and I would believe, that our strength and our faith would be encouraged and strengthened in this book, John could have very well ended very easily in chapter 20. In fact, some theologians have believed that it's possible, though I think unlikely, that John 21 was added later, that maybe it wasn't even added by John himself. It, to a degree, almost seems like, well, why is John 21 here? Why does it exist? How come we didn't end in chapter 20? If you look at verse 31 of chapter 20, for instance, just the last part of it, you can see the statement, the reason that the book has been written. In fact, my Bible, which has headings still, on, off to the left side, yours may say it on top, literally says the purpose of this book. And the statement that is mentioned at the end of John chapter 20, verse 31, is that you may have life in his name, that you would believe. We've been saying it for almost the entirety of the year. The book was written that you would believe, that if you don't know Jesus, you would come to know Jesus, and that if you do know Jesus, your strength in him would be even stronger. So we come to this place, why? Why in the world 
did John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, see fit to add chapter 21? I think there's two reasons that I would give you this morning. Well, three, really. The first one is the Holy Spirit said so. But one reason, I think, is that this is going to add for us the bridge between the denial of Peter to the empowering of Peter, the forgiveness of Peter, the reconciliation of Peter. You see, without chapter 21, as we'll get to soon in verses 15 on, the last time we really saw Peter, a real intimate picture of Peter, was Peter denying that Jesus was the Lord. And, and, and now we'll see that Peter will be reconciled back to Jesus. He'll be forgiven, if you will. And then it makes a perfect bridge to Acts, where he begins to preach the gospel. Many come to the Lord, and he is used as a founder of the church. The other reason, though, I think that this has been added is because John happens to be a good friend of Peter. John loved Peter. Have you noticed over the last several weeks especially that there was a kind of competition and tension between John and Peter? Last week we saw that uh, he, he saw fit to include that John was faster than Peter to the empty tomb. Holy scripture right there. The one that Jesus loved is faster than Peter. And even here we we see this interesting note that for some reason John saw fit that, that John was the first to notice that Jesus was standing on the shore. He was the first one at the tomb to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and he was resurrected from the tomb. He, he's the first to recognize Jesus now on the shore. And, and then he adds to it this caveat that Peter, who was stripped for the work of fishing, saw fit to put on a cloak before he jumped into the water to go get Jesus. I don't know if you swim very often, but typically before you swim, you take your clothes off. You don't put them on. And Peter, the cloak he put on, it was a heavy wool cloak. It would have, it would have been hard to swim to the shore. In fact, we see this tension even later in John 21. Look at John 21, verse 20, which we did not read together. Peter is walking with Jesus, as Jesus has just stated in verse 19, follow me. And Peter turned, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John, following them, and the one whom he also leaned back against him during the supper, you know, the one who said, who's going to betray you, all speaking of John. And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You see, Peter has, you'll see in a moment, he's just been reconciled to the Lord. He's been commissioned by the Lord. And he's not, just because Peter's Peter, you know, he, he's, not, he's not just worrying about what Jesus has said to him. He's now wondering, well, what are you going to do with John? You know, the guy who said he beat me to the tomb. And Jesus responds, it's none of your business. Leave him be. So John has this loving, very real, brotherly relationship with Peter. And so we have this epilogue of John 21. Now remember, Peter has seen that the tomb is empty. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, we don't know that Peter has seen Jesus, but Peter knows that Jesus has been resurrected. We're also told in other places that the disciples were to be waiting on a mountain for Jesus. The place that we were at, the disciples were supposed to be sitting, waiting, praying for the commissioning of Jesus Christ. And that's not what happens, is it? No. After Jesus revealed himself again, it says, Peter says, I'm going fishing. 
I, I, Peter being a, uh, the kind of person he was, he was a natural leader. He was, he was an activist. He couldn't just sit still. He had to do something. And so he, he picks up and he tells his other, other friends and the, the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And the others say, okay, we'll go with you. So Peter was a natural leader. I think we have to ask the question, why did he do this? And, and to be honest with you, I think it's because Peter is so insecure at this moment. He, he probably believes through the de- him denying Jesus Christ that there's no way he can be any use to helping the kingdom of God grow. Yes, Jesus has resurrected, but, but what do I have to do with that? I'm a failure to him. I, I rejected him. And in fact, not only did he reject him, but G, uh, Peter was so emphatic that, that he said, wherever you go, Jesus, I will go. And the most intimate of conversations, the last conversation that Peter has with Jesus, Jesus tells him, no, you're going to deny me three times and then a rooster will crow. I think Peter knows all of this. And so he picks up and he goes to go do the one thing that he knows he's good at. He goes back to his natural life. He goes back to the natural way of doing things. He goes back to fishing. He was good at fishing. He knew he could fish. What I think is interesting about this, just so you know, is if you remember, Jesus called Peter out of fishing. Jesus said to Peter, you will no longer be a fisherman. You'll be a fisher of men. And yet, he finds himself back to where he's at. And, and God, I think, just as a side note, God likes to call fishy people. You know, the kind of people that they're doing the work, they're behind the scenes, you know, we eat the produce and, and we don't think much of them. But if you think of the kind of fishermen they were, they, they fished in the, the rain, they fished in snow, they fished in all kinds of storms, they'd fish with broken tools. And it also required a tremendous amount of teamwork, a tremendous amount of teamwork, and a tremendous amount of patience. Jesus enjoys calling fishermen kind of people to the kingdom of God, to be used by the kingdom of God. And so he goes back to his old life. John 16, prior to this passage, Jesus says, The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. Jesus, before his crucifixion, predicted that this would be the case. The word your own home here literally means your own business, your own affairs, your own property, your own professions. Jesus went on to say, you'll leave me alone. You're going to bail on me. So he's doing this. And and they go out when? At night. Remember, John is a a literary genius. He's he's artistic in his writing. He, He He's an artist in his writing of double meanings. And the going out at night is a twofold meaning here. One is, is that when he went out at night, whenever we turn our back on Jesus, whenever we turn our back on God, it's typically in dark moments. It's nighttime. He's been contrasting light and dark throughout the entire gospel. But it was also because, it, because of the actual fact that that was the best time to fish. You'd go out at night. You'd catch your fish at night. So you could take them to the market in the morning and you could sell them at the market in the morning. However, in this case, they've been fishing all night. They're frustrated. It's a toilsome kind of work. What did they catch? That's right. Absolutely nothing. Isn't this the case whenever we try to do things on our own? Is this not the case when we turn our back on God and we go away from the ways of God to the ways that we think are best, that they tend to be fruitless and not as much of a blessing as they would be with Jesus? 
One pastor says there's nothing wrong with fishing. It was a respectable profession, but it's not what the Lord had called them to do. They were chosen to be fishers of men, and having left their nets and followed him, there was no going back. For those of you who have come into an intimate knowledge with Jesus Christ, have you ever been able to fully turn your back on God? Whenever I talk about the sovereign choosing of God and and the free will, one of the things I'll say to somebody when they go, I think you can walk away from God, and I'll say, prove it. And if you've really come to know him, you can't. You can't. Where else are you going to go? Peter himself said that you alone have the words of life. And yet we'll find ourselves in moments where, where we'll detract from God only to keep feeling the magnetic pull of Jesus Christ back to himself. Has anyone ever done that before? Have you, even if it was for a day, tried to live life the way that you think is best? Maybe you tried it for an hour, 10 minutes. It doesn't work for those of us who've come to Jesus. Luke actually tells us, using a, uh, the, the metaphor of gardening and, and growth, he says, Jesus said to him, Luke nine sixty two, no one puts his hand to the plow, looks back. Because if you're plowing a straight line and you look back, what happens to your straight line? Whoop. It goes awry. Jesus says anyone who's looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Anybody who's thinking about their past life is not fit for the kingdom of God. And then Philippians 3.13 reads, Brothers, I do not consider it that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. Right? There, is, there is no fixing the mistakes that we've made yesterday, is there? I mean, there may be places where you need to ask for forgiveness. There may be times that you need to make reconciliation with with someone that you've offended. But at the end of the day, especially those things that have affected you years and years ago, you can't fix them. There's nothing you can do about them. The Bible says don't worry about yesterday, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Just, Just worry about right now. Be on the mission right now. The reality of this is, is that they're, they're in the waters, they're going back to their work, they're trying to be successful at the one thing, the one thing they know. I mean, don't you, don't you understand that Peter, he, he, not only, he wasn't an expert fisherman because he just, he just happened to be an expert fisherman. He grew up around fishing. It was family tradition. It was all he knew. His family was good at it. His grandpa was good at it. His great-grandpa was good at it. It's what they knew. Now he finds himself at night absolutely catching nothing. And then who in verse 4 happens to appear in the morning on the shoreline? It's Jesus. Doesn't Jesus seem to always appear in the morning? Bringing fresh daylight and fresh hope. And they don't recognize him because this resurrection of Jesus is that when he died on the cross and then when he came back from the dead, his body no longer is limited by space and time. And there's something about him where, where he's, he has this resurrected, almost unrecognizable, but yet recognizable existence about him. Are you with me? And so they don't notice him at first. And, and Jesus says what you should say to any tough fisherman, verse 4, children. Have you caught any fish? Right in a sense, you see him fathering. You see him, see him loving on them. He, he's using these words, children, to them. And he says to them, just what you need to do. Now, granted, they don't know who this man is. He happens to be standing on the shore, maybe about 100 yards off or so. Cast your nets to the other side. Do you know how far the distance of the other side is? 
And this particular boat that they'd be using, it's about seven and a half feet. Now, I'm no expert fisherman, but I'm not sure seven and a half feet adds up to all that much difference for fishing. Now, you might argue with me because you're a fisherman, and I appreciate that, but for the sake of this argument, we'll say it probably doesn't mean a whole lot. And they catch a net so full of fish that, that the Gospel of John makes note, it's amazing that the net didn't tear. They catch a huge amount. They say, it says they caught 153 of them. And, and, and it makes note, it wasn't just 153 small fish, it was 153 large fish. Are you with me here? Large fish. Now, just as a side note, I don't know that it probably doesn't mean all that much, but it makes note of 153 fish, the number 153. Now, some have made arguments that there's a deeper meaning to 153. Uh, most uh, credible theologians say there's probably not too much to argue about that other than the reality is, is that they said, oh my goodness, this is eyewitness testimony, and this is notable to note. And somebody said, this is a lot of fish. We better count them. Others said, well, they were going to make money on these fish, so they need to know exactly how many fish they were. They were going to take them to market. Some have stretched that beyond to actually say that in that day, there was 153 known species of fish in existence. That 153 represents one for every species known at the time to kind of give this example that Jesus is going to fish all people from all places at any time. That might seem beautiful, but it's probably a stretch. Here's a few things we learn about this, though, in Jesus telling the disciples to cast the net seven and a half feet to the other side. Number one, Jesus always knows more than you do. Just as he had rerouted all the fish away from their boat all that night, Jesus now redirected a massive school to the right side of the boat. Can we just for a few moments acknowledge the reality and worship God that he knows more than us? Could we just come to a place of acknowledging the reality that, that, that Lord, you, you know more than me? That I don't know what's best for my life? See, God had a purpose in them toiling all night, and he had a purpose in them catching all those fish in the morning. Do you see the failure as just as beautiful as the success? Jesus knows more than you, which leads me to number two. Jesus is getting them, just as he is us, getting them to face their failure. There's no fishtail here, is there? Little children, have you caught anything? No. Right? Especially within fishtails, right? You, did you catch something? Yeah, I caught something. How big was it? It was about that big. We, we like to stretch and make ourselves look successful like we've done something. And here's this man on the shore. He's asking, and, and they have to finally come to a place of admins. We've been out here all night. There is no success story. Jesus is getting them just as he is every single person who will ever come to faith in him to admit that they don't have it all together and that they have a need for God. Number three, Jesus' disciples are always most effective when they listen and obey the words of Jesus. Let me read that again. Jesus' disciples are most effective when they listen and obey the words of Jesus. We, as Christians, 
will not be successful in this world unless we hear the words of God and do the words of God. John 15, verse 5, reads this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. The one that is with me is what he's saying. The one that is intimate with me, the one who walks with me, the one who knows me, that's the one who's going to bear a lot of fruit. For apart from me, he says, you can do, who knows the rest? Nothing. I like how one pastor says it. He tells them in verse 6, cast the nets to the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. So they cast. Now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. There is a huge difference between doing something on your own and doing something at the direction of God at the leading of the Lord. And you know what the difference is? Results. That's the difference. He goes on to say, I know many people who are in the service of the Lord. They work hard, they're competent, they're diligent, and they walk away going, I caught nothing. Because it's more than diligence and it's more than being competent. It's more, it's, it's more than being competent. It's being obedient to listen to where he wants to go and how he wants you to do it. Listen, the difference between success and failure was the width of the boat. What difference does it make to put my nets here or seven and a half feet away? Only that Jesus said to put it there. Why would he say that? I don't know. But are you going to argue about it? Or are you going to put your nets down and get something? Do you understand what he's saying? Sometimes Jesus is going to call us to do things as a church and as followers of Christ that are just a little bit different and sometimes radically different than the rest of the culture for the sake of fruit and for the sake for us to recognize that we couldn't do it on, on our own. Why would we need a God if we can look back and say, my intelligence did it, my competence did it, my giving did it, my prayer did it? No, we must always come to a place where we recognize Jesus did it. I always love the great answers of the churches who love the word and love God. And when people ask them, why is your church successful? Why is it growing? Why is it thriving? And the simple answer is grace. Grace. We don't deserve his blessing. We don't deserve his growth. We don't deserve having all of these kids go to Bible school and coming back and wanting to pour into the church and wanting to pour into God. We don't deserve any of that. We just get grace, and we're thankful we didn't get justice. God's good to his people because he's a good God, and we must rejoice in that. I like it when someone comes to me and they say, Hey, hey, uh, why... Why do you think Jesus chose you? Why do you think God chose the people of the church? And I, I actually, just to backtrack just a little bit, we, we, uh, we were at a conference a couple weeks ago, and I was introduced to a pastor who I've only known now for a couple weeks, but he has become one of my favorite preachers. I didn't know about him. Brad Franklin and, and Wayne has known about him, but his name's Artazuria. And just a tremendous expositor of Scripture. In fact, I was sitting in the conference, and I like taking notes to try to be engaged. And it was one of those sermons. I don't know if, if you've ever heard them here. Hopefully you have. <laughs> but, but I was in that. I was taking notes. And I just stopped taking notes because I felt like, I was, like I was in a holy moment. It wasn't going to do me any good to take notes. I couldn't keep up with him. He was moving way too fast. He was cutting way too deep. It was just a spiritual, deep, radical Holy Spirit, Jesus' presence kind of moment, and I just was thankful to be there. I wasn't sure if he always preached that way or if he just was getting lucky today, you know? 
Because you don't always know. Not everyone preaches that way all the time. It just, it was so good. And, and I remember looking over, I think, at Brad Knoll at the conference and said, I want to take him home with me. <laughs> Luckily, because of, yeah, yeah, not Brad. I wasn't trying to take Brad home. And I've been listening to him a little bit in the gym here and there, and he had this great deal where he was talking about God choosing his people. And, and, and he said, you know, he, the way he said, God, God doesn't choose you because you were great and because you were mighty. He chose you because you are the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> and for some, it is so offensive. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to the world because it tells the world you have nothing to offer God. It tells you that you cannot pull up your bootstraps to get to him. There is no amount of good works that you can do. There is no right attitude you can do. Your only hope is for the grace of Jesus Christ to fall upon your life and to quicken your spirit that you would be awakened to the love of God. But the hope for any pastor who preaches God's word is that his spirit would go forth in such a way that he awakens hearts, softens minds to bring people into the loving presence of the God who saw fit to come from heaven to earth to save people who did not want to be saved. to save people that didn't even know they needed to be saved, to save people who were trying to save themselves in all kinds of different ways. There's a fourth thing we learn here in this moment, though. How often is Jesus standing right there and you don't recognize it? In San Diego, as I said, my grandmother said, maybe, maybe when Jesse comes, he'll pray with me. And so we took some time yesterday morning to sit down with her in her room. And my mom was there who believes in Jesus, and my youngest sister is there who believes in Jesus. And we're having a beautiful moment before we pray. She's sharing some very beautiful things. She's having a hard time articulating it, but she's getting it out. And we were about to pray, and I felt the Lord say to me, because we were missing one other sibling in the room, my sister, who uh, is 18 years apart in age from me, has decided at this moment in her life to not follow Jesus. She grew up, unlike me, in a Christian home, but the same home that my younger sister grew up in, who's decided to follow Jesus, and it's just not her thing at this moment, though we know that that doesn't matter to Jesus because he can fix that at any time that he wants. And I felt the Lord say to me in that moment, don't leave her out of this. And so in that room, feeling the presence of God, I walked out. I asked my sister to come closer to me so I could kind of give her the privacy needed to share with her what I needed. And I said, we're going to pray for Grandma. Do you want to be in the room? I wanted to respect and honor her position, not shove it down her throat. And she, of course, at that time, she said yes. And as we prayed for my grandmother and we prayed that God would give her a clarity of mind at the end of her life before she passed to express her well wishes to those that she loved and, and we prayed for gratitude that God brought her from England to the United States to be a part of our family and we began to weep and cry together and there was one thing, like I said earlier, the presence of God was there. 
even for my sister, I could tell she knew, though she may not come to a place of confessing it with her mouth at this time, God was in that room. I've been in the hospital on many occasions with people passing. God is always present in that room. Do you know he's present in this room? God is the ultimate guest here. He is the center of attention. He is the one that we look to. Just as in verse 7, John realizes and says, It's the Lord! Whew. Somehow, some way, the blinds are taken off. He recognizes that the Savior is on the shore, and, and I'm sure he was thinking back to the first time that he was told to throw his nets into another place in the water to make Jesus his master. And characteristically, John is the quicker to perceive. Peter is the quicker to act. He jumps on to, into the water to the shore. For what purpose? For what end? To have a barbecue on the beach with Jesus. I love that. To have a barbecue on the beach with Jesus. You know that's Christianity too. So he calls him to the beach. And it tells us something very interesting. It can't be lost on us. But look at verse um, verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I want you to see a couple things. First of all, there are two times in the Gospel of John that the word used for charcoal fire is used. Do you know where the first one is? When Peter denied Jesus by the warmth of the fire. John, again, he's a genius in his writing. He's being led by the Spirit. This is the second time it's mentioned, and he's calling Peter to himself. Peter's the first to shore. He jumps into the water. Peter's the first one as he gets to the shore to see that there is a fire that has been prepared with fish on that fire. He's immediately bringing Peter back to his public, radical, ugly sin of denying the Savior. The text doesn't tell us what he felt, but I'd imagine that it was in a very emotional, visceral feeling to see that he had this, this love of, of Jesus to jump in the water, to get to Jesus, to be welcomed to a charcoal fire pit with fish on it. But Jesus already uh, is starting to bring Peter back into this right relationship with himself. And he says, Peter, you guys, go, go grab some, some fish. Go grab some of the fish you just caught. Why is that unique? Jesus, Jesus already had fish on the fire. Jesus did not need Peter's catch. And yet, it's interesting if you take notice, if you remember, they had a very hard time pulling the net into the boat but once Jesus says, go get some of your fish, Peter goes over to that net and by himself drags the net onto the shore by himself. Peter obviously lifted weights. <laughs> Jesus invites him to come with this fish. Here's the principle. Jesus doesn't need your help, but he loves your involvement. He doesn't need your fish but he invites you to bring them. He can make his own. He doesn't need your help, but he wants your involvement. He's already in this moment sharing with Peter, yeah, you've denied me, but I want you to help make a meal with me. And then 
he has this beautiful conversation with Peter in front of all of the disciples. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Maybe at some point you've heard a teaching on this, but it's lost in our language because the English language just isn't as deep as the Greek language. But as Jesus approaches Peter in front of all of the other disciples, what he says to Peter is this. He, he, says, he says, Peter, do you agapeo me? The best way, the easiest way to say agapeo is 100% love. Peter, do you love me with 100% kind of love? All your strength, all your might. You know, a kind of God love, the kind of love that I'm capable of toward you. Do you agapeo me? And Peter, for the first time in all of the Gospels, humbles himself and tells Jesus, Jesus, you know that I love you. And the word he uses is not agapeo, it's phileo. Another way to put it, 70% love. Jesus says, Peter, do you 100% love me? Peter says, for the first time, in humility, he breaks down, looks at his Savior, and finally humbles himself. I do with a 70% kind of love. Jesus still commissions him. Well, feed my lambs then. But then he asks him a second time, Peter, do you agapeo me? Come on, I'm going to give you a second chance here, dude. Do you love me with 100% kind of love? And Peter responds again humbly, phileo, I love you with a brotherly kind of love. 70% is what I got. I want it to be 100%. I want to give you everything, but I know now that in my sin, I'm only capable of this much. And then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He steps down to the level of humanity. He looks at Peter a third time, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter's grieved in his spirit, and he says, you, you know I phileo you. And I think the lesson here, Jesus will take what you can give. And Jesus will always close the gap of what you don't have. God and God alone is the only one capable of a phileo kind of love, a, a, an agapeo kind of love, a, a limitless kind of love. We're capable of, of trying our best and giving our best and knowing that it's never enough. Can I ask you a question? Are you okay with giving everything you have and knowing it's still not sufficient? Are you okay with giving everything you have and still not knowing it's sufficient? Because the gospel teaches us that Jesus closes the deficit. The deficit. This is not an excuse, by the way, to go, well, he's capable of 100% love, I'm capable of 10%, so 10% is what you get today. You cover the 90. No, 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 no. I think in this moment, Peter wasn't saying, I I'm only capable of, of, of just the 70% love because that's all I want to give you. I'm comfortable with 70%. I think in his mind, he knew that, and it's not 70% in the original language. I'm just using it as an illustration. I think he knew this is, this is what I have. 
It has to be enough. If you're going to be used by God to go into the world and make disciples, you have to understand that Jesus is going to be enough for you and that you will never, ever be the perfect person. You'll never carry the message perfectly. You'll never love perfectly. You'll never be the perfect husband. You'll never be the perfect wife. You'll never be the perfect mom. Happy Mother's Day. You're not going to ever be perfect. But the good news is that Jesus came to close and fill the gap of our deficit. And so he comes to Peter in public, and he reconciles Peter back. Three denials, three new commissions. He's showing Peter each denial has been covered by my perfect sinless blood on the cross. Spurgeon said, man's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. I mention this because the question should be asked, why in the world would why in the world would Jesus put Peter in such an embarrassing position to admit his great need and fault? Because our repentance and our confession and our sin should never be louder than the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. To finally come free, to finally be in a place where you can expose yourself and say, you know what, I, I don't care that I'm a sinner. Not, not in a, a lackadaisical, flippant sense, but in the sense of my identity and your identity as a Christian is not marked by your past mistakes and your past stupidity. Your identity is marked by the perfect life, the perfect death, and the perfect resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are hidden and one with him. This gives us a confidence and a humility that should be unsurpassed by anyone in the world. It's both tensions. Extremely confident in Christ and extremely humble in our need of God. And in spite of Peter's deficit, in spite of our deficit, Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You know, we learn something else here. The Lord has always uses weak and sinful people to advance his kingdom because there's no other kinds of people. If you don't feel sufficient to bring forth the kingdom of God, you are in Peter company. You are in good company. And then as he kind of wraps this thing up after he commissions him, I like what it says here in verse... Uh, 18, truly, he says to you, truly, Peter. Again, he's this double usage that he's used throughout the gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are what? Old. You'll stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter would be crucified at an old age for his faith in Jesus. As a side note, true followers of Jesus are willing to die for the cause of Jesus. True followers of Jesus are willing to die for the causes of Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, we see Peter at a young age. He's under the threat of death, and he has been bound by chains. He's under the threat of death, and he is bound by chains. And Acts chapter 12 tells us he sleeps. 
Do you know why he sleeps? Because Jesus told him you wouldn't die until you were old. One last lesson, and it's important for me. The promises of God can bring a good night's sleep. The promises of God bring the kind of peace that my grandmother has in her final moments. It was beautiful for her to speak as she was looking to heaven. She says, I'm not asking God why me. God when. Oh, man. Don't you want to be there one day? That place where you're just, you're ready to be with God, to see him face to face. And then, John concludes the book in verse 24. He says, this, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He's, he's reiterating, hey guys, I was there. I saw them with my eyes. And, and, and in fact, there's other places where the Bible says 500 people, they also saw them and they're still alive today. If, if you want to go find out and find out if this is true, go find those 500 witnesses and they'll tell you that they saw that Jesus was resurrected as well. And he goes on and he says this. He says, these things were written, these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's inviting us as Christians to believe. Then he ends the book very beautifully. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written in them. We've spent a year in the Gospel of John. In all honesty, I could go another year. There's enough here to last us a lifetime. But God in his sovereignty and in his goodness has given us a a plethora of books and good news that that God loves the world, that he has come, that people would know him, and, and he is strengthening and encouraging our church to move forward with the mission of God. It's good news to know that we don't have to go back fishing. We don't have to go back to our old life. We embrace our new life in Jesus Christ. Knowing that our sins and our past mistakes, our past histories, our past denials have been renewed by the Spirit of God. His mercies are new every morning. Are you tired of hearing it yet? I'm not. And if you get bored of it, I'm sorry because I'm going to keep preaching it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that we've been able to spend, that we've had the ability, Lord, the the privilege to spend a year in this gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that in your sovereignty you saw fit to save a man like John, that you brought him to yourself and you gave him new life and you made him a wonderful, wonderful writer of your good news. We also thank you, we deeply thank you for saying someone like Peter, a man who talks out of turn, acts too fast, has a rough life, says things he shouldn't, acts too zealous when he probably shouldn't be too zealous, sits back when he probably shouldn't have sat back. Thank you for all the ways that we relate with him. And thank you for the good news of renewing his life, Lord, and redeeming him to yourself and using him to be one of the greatest preachers and greatest evangelists in all of the New Testament. 
We pray that we would not look at these lives and say, yeah, that was for them, but we would look at those lives and say these things can be true for us. And that we would look into the world, not only at ourselves and say that they're true for us, but we would look to people within this church and within this community, Lord, that are like Peter, that they are like John, and we, filled with hope and faith, would be used in their lives to convert them to your saving grace, that they too could know your forgiveness and be used for the advance of the kingdom of God. We trust you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.